Hey, do you know what today is? Today is the, uh, what's known as the autumn equinox. It is the first official day of fall. Well, while we were still living in New England, fall was probably my favorite time of year. And if you've ever been, you know, in that part of the country or, or north where there's more deciduous type of trees, you, you get it, right? Have you, seen, have you driven? Have you seen the colors? I mean, we get some here even in Arizona. But the cooler temperatures, the, the changing of the foliage, the fall festivals that, that they would have uh, throughout. We lived in Connecticut uh, for for I guess it was 12 years, worked in a church there before coming here, and Connecticut had these fall festivals, these little town festivals uh, that we always enjoyed going to, these little towns, and they would have like, you know, pig chases and axe throwing and all that kind of uh, stuff like you could imagine, but, and, and we had some, some fun family traditions. I think one of our favorites was getting together with our family every Columbus Day, and we would uh, get together, we'd, we'd have some fun at my parents' house, and one of the things we always did on Columbus Day was that we would go apple picking. We had some friends that we grew up with. They had an apple orchard. My, my brother and his kids had worked for a, another uh, apple orchard in town. And so we would, we would pick one of these places. Sometimes we would do a hayride. And uh, we just always enjoyed that custom, that time together of, of picking apples. So a couple years ago, 2015, our family, Cindy, found this place down in Wilcox, Apple Annie's. Who's been there? Anybody? Look around the room, baby. Just your mom, and she went with us, right? So, uh, yeah, we drove all the way down. That's like a three-hour drive. I mean, I'm thinking, what am I, crazy? I mean, I like apple picking, but not this much. We had to drive down there, stay in a hotel. You know, I mean, this is elaborate now just to pick apples. And let me tell you something. Uh, not to rain on my wife's parade, but, man, I was so disappointed by apple picking at Apple Annie's. So don't even bother going down there. It was September. It was too warm. When we go apple picking back east, it's nice and cool, you know. You, you pick a fresh apple right off the tree, man. It's juicy. It's crispy. It snaps and runs down your face. I mean, it is just absolutely delicious. These apples, not so much. Dry. Most of them looked a little rotten. Most of them were on the ground. I mean, I thought, what are we going to do? Just pick up apples up off the ground? Let me tell you, I was so disappointed. We did pick a, a basket of apples, but I'm telling you what, I don't think those apples lasted very long. They weren't good, and they and they kind of spoiled kind of fast. And then, as we read Amos chapter eight. God gives Amos this vision of a basket of fruit, summer fruit, probably figs. Uh, Amos was a fig farmer, after all, as we've already seen here in the book of Amos. What did the vision mean? Well, we're going to discover that uh, tonight, and from it, we're going to draw a few lessons that we can apply to our own lives. But let me jump right to the punchline, the moral of the story, if you will, the big idea. Here it is. It's on the screen. The big idea, God condemns his people for participating in evil. Say that with me. God condemns his people for participating in evil. In evil. Church, listen, we all need reminders like this, don't we? I mean, 
it's not rocket science. This isn't like any great revelation. Like, oh, pastor, I, that, I, that never don't know. But we have to be reminded that God does not want us as his people participating in evil. Israel had become spoiled. Spoiled rotten. And something had to be done. So let's dive in. Here's what we're going to see. First of all, we're going to see the depiction, the basket of summer fruit. Then we're going to see the decay. And then we're going to see the Lord's declaration because of the decay. So number one, the depiction. This basket of summer fruit. And here's the truth. It's on the screen. The moral and spiritual deterioration in Israel had passed the point of no return. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of a basket of fruit, a summer basket of fruit, what are you picturing? Aren't you picturing like maybe something that, that granny had on her kitchen, on her dining room table, on her kitchen table? I mean, it's got apples, it's got some oranges, it's got some grapes in there, some bananas, and it just looks all so fresh. And you just want to walk over to that basket and have a nice piece of fruit. How many of you really enjoy eating fresh fruit? Anybody? All right. Most of us, all right? So you know exactly what we're talking about, right? You can picture that basket of fruit. Well, the residents of Israel, they look forward to the summer fruit. It was the last fruit. It meant that the harvest had ended. It was a time of joy. It was a time of feasting. In fact, in Judah, they had a religious festival of the harvest, kind of like our fall festivals. Kind of that idea of coming together and enjoying the fruits of their labor. It was, a, it was a time of joy and it was a time of feasting. But a summer, a basket of summer fruit, it's not the idea of this joy and feasting. It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. There was no joy and feasting in, in the vision that Amos gets from God. Why? You see, a basket of summer fruit had a very short shelf life. A basket of fruit picked in the summer heat, the scorching summer heat in the Middle East, it didn't keep very long. It began to deteriorate almost as quickly as you, you picked it and it began to go bad rather quickly. It had to be eaten almost right away. So what they would do is they would harvest it Last harvest of the year, they would put it in baskets, they would come together in this festival, and they would pretty much try to consume that fruit as quickly as possible. So what, what's the message in the depiction? What's the message? Well, the basket of fruit was an object lesson. One that I think Amos picked up on being a farmer. I think, uh, of course, Israel being in a, an agricultural uh, uh, society, right? I mean, they, they, they lived. That was, they, all, they all had to participate in that process for them to have food, right? So they understood that this was a representation. What did it represent? Well, it simply represented the end of the northern kingdom. It represented that, that just as that summer fruit uh, indicated the end of the agricultural season, Israel had arrived at the end of its natural, national, excuse me, season. Why? Because the nation was spoiled and decaying. 
Well, that brings us to number two, and that's the decay. We see this in verses four through six. Here's the truth. It's on the screen. Israel broke God's law and failed to live by his covenant. Look how the nation had spoiled. Spoiled morally and spiritually. Look at verses four through six. Hear this. God says, you who trample on the needy and do away with the poor of the land, asking when will the new moon be over so we can sell grain the Sabbath, so that we can, uh, we can market wheat. And they go on and they talk about how they're going to exploit the poor and the needy. Here's what happened. God's people got to the point where they totally disregarded the word of God. This is God's people. This was the nation that God started with Abraham. He was, God was the one who, who brought them into Egypt and then brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land and conquered all those Canaanite cities and gave them the land. The same God who had done so much for them here, now they had disregarded God's word. They, had, they didn't care about the truth any longer. What did they care about? Themselves. Benefiting themselves. Making another buck. And Amos gets really specific how they broke God's law. The first having to do with the, the first table of the law. The second having to do with the, the second table of the law. The first table of the law has to do with our relationship with God. The second table of the law had to do with our relationship with one another, our, our neighbor. And here's what happened. They didn't love God and they didn't love their neighbors. They basically were desecrating the entire law of God. And we can categorize it in two categories, two offenses, injustice and irreverence. Let's look at one at a time. Did you pick up on the injustice as we read verses 4 through 6? You see what they were doing? The vendors, the merchants, these were propertyed people. They owned the property. They were moneyed people. They were the ones who, who had the wealth. These were the fat cats uh, living in Samaria. Perhaps these are the husbands of the, of the cows of Bashan that, that we read about in chapter 4. But these vendors were acting like, how do you say it, like a, like a bunch of used car salesmen. <laughs> you ever had to deal with one of those guys before, right? I mean, what are they doing? They're, they're cheating at every, they are lying. They are deceiving however they can to make a buck. What were they doing? Well, they're using inaccurate measurements. What they would do is when they went to sell grain, they would, un, they would use an undersized measuring basket. When they went to buy goods, they used overweight counterweights. Overweight counterweights, right? So, so basically, when they were selling stuff, they were cheating. When they were buying stuff, they were cheating. They were rigging the scales in their favor. And so they were inflating their prices. They were even cheapening their products. Uh, we read about here where they would actually mix in the chaff with the grain so that you go to buy grain and you're not even getting you're getting a smaller amount. You're not even getting pure grain. You're getting the junk mixed into it. Imagine going to buy a, a bag of flour and half of it's like, you know, dirt mixed in with, with the flour. I mean, that's basically what they were buying. And what we gather from the text is that God hates this sort of thing. 
God hates it when his people are dishonest in our business dealings. In fact, if you go back to the law, God had required of his people, this is Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 25, he required, he demanded that they use accurate weights and measures for buying and selling had to be accurate. God demanded that of his people, but they cared only about themselves. They only cared about how much money they could possibly make, and so they trampled on the poor. They robbed the needy. They took advantage of the very people who needed this stuff just simply to survive, and they were taking from them. Why? Well, I guess there's two two roots of this and wouldn't you say just it's pretty simple to identify isn't it i mean greed and materialism right they're greedy they're materialistic for them their life revolved around this preoccupation with stuff having more stuff you read in amos all the stuff they had. They enjoyed a very luxurious lifestyle. They lived in homes with ivory, right? Beds inlaid with ivory. These were very, very wealthy people who, who lived for material things, and they had this constant, selfish, excessive desire for more. More money, more stuff. Doesn't this sound strikingly similar to today's culture? Right? It does. When we become more consumed with riches and gaining material things, it's not long before we start being controlled by that desire. Right? And then what happens is, is the more we desire it, the more we want it, then if, if that continues to grow and fester in our life, we begin stepping on people and taking advantage of people in our business dealings to try to get more and more. Willing to do whatever it takes. And by the way, it's not just the rich who do this sort of thing. It's the poor as well, right? You don't have to have a lot to be materialistic, do you? You can have, very, you can have nothing. You can be extremely poor and be greedy, and materialistic. And so it's not, this is not just uh, the sin of the rich. This is something that, that, that can affect any person at any level in the society. Paul wrote this, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This is what was going on. There was this injustice based on greed and materialism. But there wasn't only injustice, the decay also included this irreverence. Because added to their deception was this desecration of God's holy days, the Sabbath. The festivals, those things that were part of the Jewish traditions, those, those days that God told the Jewish people to, to honor and to celebrate in remembrance of what he had done for them. Well, what Amos describes here is that they are so preoccupied with, with their commerce that they're just... The whole, the whole holy day, the whole Sabbath day, they're just figuring out how they're going to make more money tomorrow when they get back. They're kind of frustrated. <laughs> Sabbath, I can't work today. I got <laughs> I to I make more money, right? They were so consumed with themselves and their greed and their materialism that their wealth became greater than their worship. 
their personal gaining of wealth made even their times of worship seem fruitless and empty and vain because their heart wasn't in it. In fact, we find throughout the book of Amos their, their worship became corrupted. They're worshiping idols. They're, they're worshiping everything but God. And, and their, their worship of God is, is so tainted. It doesn't even resemble what, what, what is pleasing to God when it comes to worship. And it all goes back to the heart and the greed and the materialism. So the fruit that Israel had produced was this lack of compassion for those in need, this lack of justice for those who couldn't defend themselves, and this lack of sincere worship before the Lord. And it was to be the last fruit that the northern kingdom would ever produce. And it was so bad, it was so far spoiled. Think of that basket of rotting fruit. It was, Israel had become so spoiled that it had passed the point of no return. Right? Ladies, think of Think of the bananas hanging on your counter, right? And, and they hang there a little too long, and what happens? Right? They start, they start turning brown and spotted, right? I mean, uh, you, you can't reverse that. You can't reverse There's no way that you can somehow rewind and somehow freshen up that fruit. Once that fruit is spoiled, once that fruit is rotting, it's rotted. And what do you do with it? Well, you make banana bread. That's what that, we had banana bread, and my wife likes to put chocolate chips in it so it's even tastier, right? Ask her for a loaf of her banana bread. It's amazing. All right. Well, Israel had gone so far beyond. They were so decayed. This is, the, this is number three, the, the declaration. Israel became so ripe in sin that she had to be destroyed. This is what God says. We see this two or three times in this passage. It says, this is the Lord's declaration. God sizes them up. They're a, summer of, they're a basket of summer fruit. They're spoiled. They're rotten. It will produce no more fruit. It, it, the only thing that you can do with a basket of rotten fruit is empty it and toss it out. And this is the Lord's declaration. Remember that the Lord has been incredibly patient with his people. Don't forget this. Sometimes we come to passages like this and we think, oh, man, why, why can't God just give them a chance? <laughs> he has. He's been giving them chance after chance. After. In fact, understand something. This prophecy, when Amos makes this prophecy, it's still like almost 50 years before the judgment actually comes. God has been incredibly gracious. He's been incredibly patient with his people, but they refuse to listen. They refuse to change. And so God would not pass by in mercy anymore. Look at verse 3. God says this. The end has come for my people, Israel. I will no longer spare them. Now, the end has come for my people, Israel. Again, it's still 40 40 plus years until Assyria comes in and conquers. However, God's mind, it was as good as done. It was as good as done. The end has come. What you do with a basket full of spoiled, rotten fruit is you empty it and you throw it away. And this is what God says. Look at verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob... 
And I think there's a little bit of sarcasm there. I think God's using a little bit of sarcasm, the pride of Jacob because of how proud they were in their sin. He says, I've sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget all their deeds. Whoa, whoa, wait, what? Well, here's what we have to remember. God is a just God. And that means that God won't forget. He vowed he will not forget the wealthy's greed and their disregard for him and others. See, God is righteous and he shows no partiality. And so his justice has to be meted out. He must in his righteousness and in his holiness. He must judge them. Yes, there will be, those, there will be survivors. The smallest remnant however, will suffer God's wrath with them. But as we read, keep reading in the chapter from verse 8 down to the end of the chapter, Amos describes the coming judgment. Let's look at verse 8. He says, because of this, won't the land quake and all who dwell in it mourn? All of it will rise like the Nile. It will surge and then subside like the Nile in Egypt. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord. I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the land in the daytime. What, what's going on here? Well, we find here in these verses that, that God's judgment is going to be meted out in this fashion. First of all, there's going to be this flood. And really what he's talking about here, he's talking about this earthquake that would happen. And, and one of the a phenomenon that was well known in that part of the world was the annual flooding of the Nile. And what would happen was every, it began in, in, uh, in June, the Nile would flood. And it wouldn't recede until October. And it could rise 25 feet at flood stage. So it would, it would rise up in June, and it would stay, and then, and then by October, it, it would have receded. And what they would do then is they would go out, and they would plant in that muddy soil after it had receded. They would begin to, to plant in October and November. They would begin then to harvest by January, February, and March. But... There were times when the Nile's flooding was very, very destructive. And I think what, what we read here, what, we're, what we gather from what Amos records for us here, is that just as the flooding of the Nile would, would take several months, this was going to take some time, but that God was going to judge them. And that this judging would be like the, the Nile flooding. The, the land, an earthquake would rise up and it would... And it would uh, subside, it will come back down. That's how an earthquake works, right? The, the, the ground comes up and some of it comes up and some of it goes down. And so he's describing this cataclysmic, this, this shaking of the ground. There was actually one recorded in, four, uh, in 763 BC. In fact, if you go to the very first verses of the, of the chapter uh, of the book, Amos talks about this great earthquake. But not only would there be this, this effect on the land, but also this effect in the heavens. Uh, he talks about this eclipse that would take place uh, there 
says uh, in verse number nine, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the land in the daytime. That was actually what occurred in 763 BC, this eclipse. So there was going to be this flood. This is the judgment that God was going to bring on his people because they were spoiled rotten. Then he talks about in verse 10, a funeral. He says, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. And I will make the grief like the mourning for an only son and its outcome like a bitter day. Verse 3 talks about how there would be many dead bodies thrown everywhere. I mean, this is just, this is a terrible thing. People were going to die. He talks about the oldest son here. Uh, that, the, the, the oldest son, that was the heir of the family. And if the, the oldest son uh, were to die, that crea- if that was the only son, that created a problem. There was, there was no one to carry on the family name. And so it was going to be like a, a one big funeral that would go on because of the mourning. Just like as if they had lost their only son, God would not spare them because of their sins, because they'd become so spoiled rotten. He talks about in verses 11 and 12, a famine of sorts. Look at verse 11. Look, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord. When I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord, people will stagger from sea to sea, in Rome, uh, from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Not a famine, he says, of bread or wine, but, but a famine of the word of God. There would be silence. So imagine, the people are going through this destruction. Uh, Assyria would come in and, and devastate them, and yet the famine would be, they would hear nothing from God. They didn't want to hear anything from God. They had, you know, Done the la, 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 la. When Amos was preaching, Amaziah said, Amos, go back to Judah and do your, your prophesying down there. We don't, want you, we don't want you preaching messages like this around here no more. They didn't want to hear the truth. And so you know what God says? You don't want to hear the truth? You won't hear anything from me. You know how terrible that is when you're God's people, you're... The nation of Israel had survived on the word of the Lord. God, God would tell them, do this and do that. No, don't go fight them. Yeah, yeah, go take that city. I'm going to give it to you. For them to have no word from the Lord, this was, this was death for their nation. But God wasn't going to speak, continue to speak if nobody wanted to listen. He also talks about then in verses 13 and 14, this fall. In that day, the beautiful young women and the young men also will faint from thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria will say, as your God lives, Dan, or uh, as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. This was terrifying judgment. The people would be so traumatized that they would stagger like drunks from place to place, fainting from thirst, hoping to find food and drink, not only for their bodies, but for their spiritual sustenance, and they would find none. So, what's all this mean? Let me give you a couple lessons. Three lessons for us from this. Number one, number one, sin is, has a decaying effect on our lives and our nation. 
Sin has a decaying effect on our lives and our nation. Israel, though she had a rich spiritual history as God's chosen, chosen people, regardless of all the blessings that they had received of the Lord, she went her own way. She rebelled against God who saved her. Now she's spoiled rotten. And what happens, what, what happens with sin is everything that sin touches, sin spoils. Think about just the first couple chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You know, when you read the account of creation, you see how God created the universe in six days, and, and he stood back each day and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He made Adam and Eve, he, he took the dust and, and he formed Adam, and then he breathed in, into his body the breath of life. Adam became a, a living soul, a living being with a spirit within him. And then uh, later God uh, put him to sleep, as you know, and, and, and opened his side and took out a rib and, and made Eve, and, and he brought her to him, and they were married, and there they lived in the Garden of Eden, this garden utopia. There's no sin there. There's no sickness there. There's no pain there. There, there, there is nothing bad at all. Nothing. Just one rule. Don't touch that tree. Ah, that's not what he said. He said, don't eat from that tree, right? You can eat from every tree of the garden. Don't eat that one. God was giving them a choice. He was allowing them to determine what they were going to do with the word of God. And you know what happened. Sin came into the world. Satan enters the picture. He tempts Eve and, and deceives her, and she, she takes it. She eats from it, and then she gives it to her husband. Adam knew full well what he was doing. He was choosing his wife over, over God. He, if she was going to die, he wanted to be with her, right? I mean, he, he made a, 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 a very logical, very, uh, very reasoned decision. He knew what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. And that's why God pins the first sin not on Eve, but he pins it on Adam. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Well, what happened? Sin spoiled everything. You talk about one bad apple. You talk about how one bad apple spoils a bunch. Taking one fruit from, from one tree... The wrong tree, God had given them, the, who knows how many thousands of different varieties of fruit. And this isn't, isn't this how we are as human beings? <laughs> isn't this how we are? We want the forbidden fruit. Well, why can't we have that one? I want to try it, right? Well, sin spoiled. Man, how quickly everything was spoiled. Right away, their intimacy is spoiled. They recognize that they're naked and they start covering up, right? Uh, right away, their intimacy with God is severed. They hide from God when God shows up. Sin has spoiled their relationship with each other. It's spoiled their relationship with God. And then they have kids. But first, they're, they're thrown out of the garden. They're exiled, right? 
And this is what God's telling his children a few thousand years later. Sin has spoiled you and I'm exiling you from the land. That's exactly what happened with, from some spoiled fruit in the Garden of Eden. God expelled them out of the garden. And what happened? Man, sin spoiled everything. The entirety of creation came under the curse. In fact, the scripture tells us, Paul said, that creation groans under the curse of sin. To this very day, creation groans. Sin spoiled it all. The very first family. The very first family. The first two kids. You know, how many of you have kids? You have kids, right? I mean, you don't have to get little Johnny on your knees. Now, now, Johnny, let me tell you how to be a bad boy. You don't have to do that. He got it from, my little Johnny got it from me. <laughs> I was a bad little boy when I was a little boy, right? I mean, sin nature just transfers, just rubs off on our kids. They, they get it inherently. But, but there's Cain and Abel. And the first brother kills the second brother. Sin spoils everything. And sin had spoiled the nation of Israel. Listen, let's not be fooled by the destructiveness of sin and its decaying effect on our own personal lives. We, sometimes we think that, you know, it, this is my own little pet sin. It, it's, I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah, we are. We are. If you're married, you're hurting your spouse. It, it might not directly be a sin against them, but when we're not right with God, we're not right with our, there is some effect that, that our sin has on our spouse, on our children, on, on our ability to, to walk with the Lord in our home, in our community. There's a ripple effect that happens. There's a decaying effect that happens. One bad apple, one rotten piece of fruit spoils the bunch. It spoils everything in the basket. So we can't be def we're not to be fooled by the deceitfulness of sin. And I don't, I don't know who I'm talking to, and I don't know what, what's going on in our heart, but listen, let's not be fooled into thinking that somehow we can sin and it's not a big deal, or we can somehow manage that. No, we can't. It is going to decay. It, it is going to have a corrosive effect on your life. I was reading this week about this insect that has very close resemblance to a bumblebee. I don't know what it's called. Uh... But it's a terrible enemy of it because of its likeness to the bumblebee. Um, do we have bumblebees around here? I don't think I've seen one since I've lived here. Bumblebees? You know what a bumblebee is? The big, the big, they're here? Are they here? I know we had them back east. They're, they're big and they're, you know, they kind of fly around like one of those big air force, you know. Sometimes we see them flying over, going to the, going to the what are those? C-14s or something, just you know, it's like, like an elephant flying through the sky. That's what a bumblebee looks like. Well, this particular insect, it, it, it's able to get into the bee's nest. The bees let them in, but then the, this other insect uh, uh, deposits its eggs, and when its eggs hatch, they eat the eggs of the bumblebees. This is what sin does in our life. It comes in, 
and it just starts destroying so many different aspects in life. And certainly that goes for a nation. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Isn't this why we're suffering like we are as a nation right now? Isn't it because we're spoiled rotten? Isn't it because sin is just rampant? And, you know, as God's people, we have to be careful that we don't just sit around on our our spiritual high horse and get self-righteous and think about all the bad going on out there. We have to look in the mirror. (laughs) Paul said judgment should begin in the house of God, right? Rather than trying to fix all the wrongs out there, what we have to do is focus on the person looking back at us in the mirror and recognize I can't change everybody out there, but by God's grace, I want to see him change me, right? It's like, was it Moody who, who drew a circle? Or he, he told somebody, someone asked him, how do you get revival? He said, go home, draw a circle, get inside of it, and ask God to send revival to everybody in the circle, right? Sin has a, a decaying effect on our lives and our nation. Number two, the second lesson, sooner or later, sin will be punished. There comes a time when God's long-suffering runs out. This is what we're reading about in the book of Amos. God had given them years upon years upon years. He sent his prophets. He gave them his word. He, he sent the warnings. He told them, you know, hey, you're not going the right way. Go this way. And they just rejected that. And the time came when God says, okay, I've given you long enough. And you, you're not getting softer in your heart. You're getting harder in your heart. You're getting more rebellious in your heart. Too often, when we're not immediately punished for sin we commit, we think we get away with it, right? God isn't, God God didn't do anything. God judges sin how many times out of ten, church? Ten times out of ten. Ten times out of ten. So just because we don't see the judgment of God immediately doesn't mean that we should think that we're going to be able to somehow get by before a holy and a righteous God. Looking back in history of the world, boy, we've seen so many different uh, national judgments sent from the hand of God. The Amorites and the Canaanites. God said he'd drive them out, but not during... Abraham's time, 400 years later. God told Abraham, I'm going to drive them out, but their sin isn't wicked enough yet. They're they're not so far gone yet. I'm going to give them 400 years to come around. Well, they never did. And God had his people run them out. God punished the northern nation of Israel as we're, this is the prophecy of that in Amos. He did that through the Assyrians. And then, the Lord punished the Assyrians. And Nineveh is no more. God punished the, the nation of Judah through the Babylonians, took them into captivity and destroyed, they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And then later on, God punished the Babylonians. And it is no more. Even the greatest and longest lasting empire, the Roman Empire, finally was punished and there is no more Roman Empire. 
And I think we are wise to recognize that the U.S. is not exempt from this. We've been around for 247 years, but you look at the grand scheme of things, it's really not that long. My question is, is how ripe are we? It feels to me like we're getting riper and riper as the day goes by. Like, we are spoiling. I mean, look, I'm 54 now, and I, I guess it happens in every generation, right? We get older, and, and so we have a frame of reference, right? There's a frame that, okay, I know what it was like when I was a kid, and it is way worse now. Who knows how much worse it can get, but would you agree that we're spoiled? Rotten? And many people in America today live with this deceptive, delusional they live a deceptively delusional life, right? Everything seems good. It's just like it was in Amos's day. Life is good. We're living in luxury. Hey, it's great. How can I make more money? Without even realizing that we are overripe and spoiled rotten. You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to take responsibility for our sins. And he wants us to take responsibility for the, the sins of the wider community. God wants us as his people to take responsibility. Is it possible for a person to become so enslaved by sin that they will never repent? Can a person become so hardened toward God that no matter what happens, a, a severe crisis or threat of life, that an individual will never turn away from their sin and trust the Lord? What would you say? Yes. It is entirely possible and what we have to recognize is the opportunity to hear the word of the Lord and to respond to God's word. It's not eternal. It's not going on forever and ever and ever. There comes a time when our hearts can become so hard, even as a people of God, that we're not able to respond to God's word. Our conscience is seared. Our neck is so, so set in rebellion against God. And certainly that's the case of a nation. And that may very well be the case. I pray to God, not so. But that may very well be the case in our nation today. Jeremiah talks about, the, he says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Our only opportunity to rightly respond to God is now. It's not going to last forever. When the time is up, it's too late Isaiah, God said through Isaiah, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the sinful one his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. There's a time. There's a time frame. We need to recognize that. Lesson number three. There is seed to sow and a harvest to reap before the end of this season of grace. Think about that for a second. There's some seed to sow, a harvest to reap, before the end of this season of grace. We're in this season right now. We call it the, the age of, I believe it's called the, the age of grace, the, the church age is a dispensationalist. That's how I, that's how I view it. And, and I, see, I believe that th this time frame that we're living, it's not going to go on forever. Like there's going to be an end to this. 
And right now, what is our job? Our job, if you go to, to Matthew 9 and 13, right, Jesus talks about, he gives these parables. He talks about a sower. He goes out into a field, right, and he, he sows the seed, and some of it falls on the side, right, some of it on hard ground, right, but, but basically the sower just goes out there and sows. Sows the seed. The seed is the word of God. The field is the world, right? And we're to just simply go out and sow. The harvest hasn't come yet. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the harvest is the end of the world. When, the, when, when God will send his angels and will separate the wheat from the chaff. But right now, we are to be sowing the seed. Why? Because the day's going to come when like for Israel, Time's up. Time's up. Jesus said, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send forth labors into his harvest. Our time is limited and our task is clear. We get all this from a summer basket of fruit. We're spoiled rotten as a nation. We don't know how much longer we have to reach our loved ones for Christ, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just today, I, I, I heard about a guy that, that I just met a few weeks ago. He died today. I tried to text him about a week and a half ago. I tried to text him and say, hey, man, thanks for taking time with me the other day. And, man, to be honest, I'm praying for you. Can I come by and talk to you about the gospel? And I got a text back the next day that said, you got the wrong number, man. Sorry. And he died today. Terrible. You get that sinking feeling in your chest like, oh, how did that one slip through the cracks? But here's, here's the reality of it. Think about that basket of fruit. See the faces of your loved ones, of your neighbors, the people that you work with, those who don't know Christ and recognize that the fruit is spoiling fast. So let's sow the seed of the word of God. Love people. Share the gospel with them. Here's our next steps and we're done. Number one, I will recognize sin's decaying effect in my life and take responsibility for it and repent of it. I can't take responsibility for your sin. And you can't take responsibility for mine. And let's not play the victim and blame our sin on somebody else or this is the way, I, this is the way I've always been. <laughs> let's, let's take responsibility for our sin, recognizing the decaying effect it has in our life. and Repent of that. Ask God to change us. Give, give the Lord the permission to change you, to free you from that and to change you, to give you victory in your life over that. But it starts with our own desire in our heart to want to be free. That happens when we repent, we turn from it. Allow God to give us the victory. Number two, I think the next, next step would be this. I will be salt and light in my community while actively sowing the seed of God's word. You think about salt, it has a, a preserving. And I, I know there are two different metaphors. But salt has this preserving effect on it, right? This is what we're to be. Yeah, the, ba the, summer of bas the, the basket of summer fruit, things are spoiling. But let's be the people 
who are the salt and the light in the darkness, in the midst of the spoiling and, and the darkness around us. Let's be the people who are actively sowing the seed of the word of God where we go. Would you tonight, which, which next step is for you? Recognizing sin's effects and taking responsibility and repenting of it? Being salt and light, sowing the seed. Let's pray.